I'm Andrew Haynes, and this is the Fair Game Podcast, the place where we talk about all things golf. Hello from Japan. We're in Tokyo for a few weeks, checking out the golf scene on this side of the world. It's truly an amazing place. We've got a special guest with us for this episode. Some of you may know his son, Adam, the 2013 Masters Champion and Fair Game co-founder. His name is Phil Scott, and he spent decades working in golf, and we had to have him on the podcast to learn more about his background, what he's been up to, and maybe hear some funny stories about Adam's early days. Let's get started. So we're in Tokyo. This is my first time here. How many times have you been here? Um, I don't know the answer. Maybe seven or eight. Okay. Yeah. It's a nice place, Tokyo. Yeah. I mean, it's massive city, massive amount of people, spreads a long way. I think it's 30 million. That's ridiculous. People. Yeah. It doesn't feel it though when you're wandering around Tokyo. It doesn't feel that busy to me. Right. And then, so out of those seven or eight times have you been here, uh, have you seen all of the city or most of it? Like, no, it, neither of those. I'm, I'm sure I haven't seen anything. Sure. Um, number one, because you never hear that long, or I'm, I'm not here that long, a few days at a time, or it's around a golf tournament and then you're out at the golf tournament. Right. So that takes up a big part of the day. Um, so I would think I've seen very little, but there's various areas that interest me. I've found it a good city to walk. That's mm. what I like doing in Tokyo. I like going to one area or one place and just walking. Um, even though it seems like it's going to be so busy and so crowded, it's really easy to walk around Tokyo. Nice. Mm. And the weather this time of year is great. So uh, Yeah, rainy season's finished here, right. supposedly, so it's nice. Which is great for walking. Great for walking. Do you have a favorite golf course here? No. Last time I played here, I played two rounds, one at a club called the 300 Club and one at a club called the 100 Club. I think that's right. And I'm sure there's a 200 in there somewhere. Got, there has to be. But that dictates the amount of members at the club. So mm. I'm one of 100 members. Interesting one, naming. Members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, all, that's what I remember about those courses. I don't think there was another name actually to them. They might have been the North Course and the South Course. Or sure. Something, if there were two. Or, um, what I have noticed with the Japanese courses, but again, it may be an unfair broad statement because I've only played half a dozen is they're quite hilly and the, and the fairways sit in the valleys. Um, and they're tight, the land's tight because it's so hilly. So they're, they're not these big flat expanses that the architects can go crazy with. Interesting. Um, so they're, they're kind of tighter and shorter than we're used to now. Um, I got to say in the courses I've played generally in nice condition. Okay. Hmm. So, so do you think, so just with the overall court, the way that the courses are designed and then thinking about what, for example, the Zozo is happening right now, the Japan Open next week, are those guys that are playing their strategy going into those events, are they coming to these courses with a different like approach and strategy in terms of, hey, this course is going to be super tight, super narrow? Like, for example, I know Adam was talking a bit about the country club at the US Open, about how it was very quirky in certain holes and narrow and in certain areas like what do you think these guys are thinking about with the courses over here well i wonder i mean some of them won't have played any or much golf here um some will so the guys that know will definitely have to adapt their game Mm. the courses here really are not 
again, for want of broad terms, US style bash and thrash sort of stuff. <laughs> um, that's just not going to work here. Right. A lot of courses here have internal out of bounds. Oh, really? What is that so exactly? So if you hit it on the on next fairway, it's out of bounds. Oh, it's OB. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there is a bit more strategy. I know having watched Adam at Japan Opens here, there's been courses where he's hit a lot of irons off tees, you know, more than you're hitting driver. Right. Just because you have to. Just because you just it's got to be in play. It's right. tight. There isn't the premium on distance. Sure. There isn't the modern tour courses, certainly in America. Interesting. So it's a, it is a very different strategy. Um, some of the guys will get it straight away. I mean, they're the best players in the world. They'll right. play a practice round or two and they'll know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fun. Interesting. Um, so I'd love to kind of go way back to the very beginning because uh, I've heard pieces of the Phil Scott story and I, I think it's very fascinating. And I think a lot of our listeners probably haven't heard uh, all of it as well. So maybe we can start from, I don't want to say day one, but maybe start with how, how did you get into the game of golf? Maybe growing up, did you grow up playing the game? When did you start? No, I didn't. I mean, my, no one in my family played. Hmm. Um, so... I, I played like most Aussie kids, you, you know, you spend your life outside. So sure. I played sport, uh, but I didn't play golf till I was 14. What was your go-to game? What were you playing? Uh, I played up? cricket and Australian rules football, Nice, which is kind of the staple. Mm-hmm. Every kid wants to, or does, or tries. Or, um, and golf just happened because I went on an extended trip to the UK where my folks were from. And I kept getting dumped with relatives for a few weeks at a time. Yeah. And at one point I was dumped with my then elderly grandparents in a small mining village in South Wales. So zero to do and I was 14. (laughs) And I just went walking up the road one day and there was a golf course. Right, there you go. And so I started playing golf and I was hooked. That's that. That was it. Wow. Mm. And then, so from there, so early teens playing, did you play competitively? Later on, like as you got older or you just play, always played casually? Oh, no. I mean, I was really hooked on the game. I didn't know anything about it. And, of course, because my family didn't play, mm-hmm. there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't a knowledge base sure. for me to understand. My dad was a member at a, uh, a course in the Adelaide Hills, very pretty course, short, hilly, looked a bit like Japan. Um, uh, but he only played five or six times a year, so I just went there to play. Nice, because there was access through him being a member. The pro there was, um, I would say, the a typical old-fashioned golf pro who's terrific to me. He he embraced the juniors. Um, he understood what you needed to know to play, and he encouraged you to do the right thing. Um, and I think overall, I'd say he encouraged you to love golf. So that was my introduction. And two years after that, I became an assistant pro. Wow, just like so that. So I, I didn't have an amateur time of just played competitions at the club, you know, right. like anyone did, and I got pretty good at it. And That's thought this is, this is it. Like all 16-year-old kids that turn pro or want to turn pro, they think they're going to be the best player in the world. That's what you think. Right. So I did. Um, and the pathway was to go work at a club as an assistant pro. So that's what I did. Nice. And then, so the path to, or the requirements to become a pro, um, do they vary from country to country or do you think they're pretty common across the board? No, they do vary. Uh, maybe there's a little bit more a parity now. Sure. 
than there than there was before. I mean, unfortunately, all of that is a long time ago, and that, so there were a lot less rules anyway. You know, there were no rules of how many hours you could work in a week or right. any of those things. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what I remember was that there was a minimum handicap requirement and then you you started working but you had playing tests that you had to achieve every year a certain standard. Um, certainly from what I've seen lately, that's become more lax really? than it was back then. Interesting. Um, certainly more forgiving. Hmm. I think you get more options. That's probably the way of the world today, whether it's right or wrong. You know, there's, there's almost a tolerance of failure, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, that's what I did. And so, you know, I just knew it. I got into the system and you had to follow the system. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a three-year apprenticeship, effectively. Nice. And you do your three years and if you pass all the tests of playing or club making or other things we had to learn, then you became a PGA member. Yeah, so it takes three years. No, I did then. That was my sure. Yeah, and then the other parts of it, because obviously one of the things that I do want to talk about as well is uh, just overall. Because when you're a, a pro at a club, you're not just out there giving lessons. You're doing all all types of things in terms of managing the club and maintenance and so on and so mm-hmm. forth that you're involved in. Are there other boxes that you have to check to to kind of like get that job outside of okay, I need you to post this score. Here's the great. Like, what yeah. else do I need to master? Uh, look again, it's changed, of course, because. Every facet of the golf industry has changed. Right. From, uh, you know, it's nearly 50 years ago when I went and did that. So you imagine how much equipment's changed and the courses have changed. Oh, yeah. How the club operates changed. Um, there wasn't, certainly wasn't anything much in the, in the PGA program then of maintenance or understanding what a golf course, how it was run or how it was maintained. It was much more that the pro had the shop. And the pro sold the gear and gave the lessons and fixed clubs, and that's what he did. Hmm. And so that's what you learnt to do. Um, we we did a a sort of a by mail business management course as part of the apprenticeship, um, and we did club repair and you had exams on all of those things. So I think it was a reasonably all round right. apprenticeship. I think it was pretty good. Um, I don't look back on it with any negative except we had no minimum hours. So if you got a boss like I got, you just worked every day, all day, and you got paid next to nothing. There you go, day in, day out. Did you live at the club or no? No. No. So you're just there. Only when I couldn't afford to put petrol in the car. Right. (laughs) Sleep in the back, right? Sleep in the upstairs in the bar. Right, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because basically, I mean, outside of, you know, the skill that it takes to post a score and hit a golf ball well, you're learning how to run a business, not just, you know, teach people how to hit better shots, which is part of the job. Because I think that's hmm. um, at least my perspective of what a lot of Americans perceive a, like a, a pro or a teaching professional. Oh, yeah, he's a guy that I go see to take lessons, but they don't realize that that guy's got 10 or a woman has 10 or 15 other things that they have to do after they're, yeah. they're done with your lesson. And you know what? I think in the ensuing years from when I did it to now, there's been a significant increase in the value of the the learning the business routine for the PG. There's a lot more support in, in the understanding you have to be able to run a business properly. But compared to what we did, I don't think we learned as much as we needed. Mm, interesting. It was simpler times as well. But, sure. Um, I think they're really pretty good at that now. Nice. So we'll talk very little about Adam Scott. Mm, this is okay. this podcast, not about Adam. So, so, 
you're in the club, you've got the job. Uh, when did Adam kind of come into the picture? Well, from when I became a pro, I was 19. And of course, at that point, still I had the dream. Um, I woke up pretty soon <laughs> that that dream was a fantasy. And um, along the way, I'd had a bit of an accident, hurt myself in a motorbike, and I didn't play well enough. I went and played a few tournaments in Australia, and there were some good players, touring pros playing. And as I look back on it, I think happily I worked out I wasn't that good because I could have spent 15 or 20 years continuing to dream that I was going to be that good. But and my reflection now says I never would have been, even though I thought I was a good player. When I saw those guys, I thought, hmm, they're really good. Um, so life was just going to be a club pro for me. That's how I viewed that, which was fine because I loved golf. And so Adam came along pretty early in my life. I was 22 when he was born. Um, and so that was, we were in that, that was, the, that was the deal. We were just, it was life, but yeah. my life was golf. Right. And then the whole family plays? Uh, my wife's a good player, she still plays. Obviously Adam plays. Casey, his sister, uh, never played a lot, is very talented. I think had the same talent base as Adam, um, but didn't want to do it, so she doesn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. So then obviously, you know, Adam is playing golf this entire time. He, you know, becomes pro, grows, all that fun stuff happens. Along the way, uh, do you, can you tell us one funny story about Adam just from the younger days? What, when he was a kid? Sure. Playing? Yeah. Gosh. I mean, I'd have to think, you know, he really started playing when he was about six on a golf course. We'd go out to a little par three course. Um, I mean, the, see, my mind works in the fun of just what that was. Sure. Rather than specific. There, I guess there's been thousands of things since then to now <laughs> that he's done that are funny at the time. I mean, he just smiled the whole time he played golf. If it was a little kid, we'd go out and he'd have a little two-wood that I'd made him and if he flushed it, it went 80 yards. And on a little par three course, he could hit the green from 80 yards. And when you do that, when they're little, I mean, it's just they're beaming. That's Because they get this thing, I've hit it, I've, I've done, I've aimed it there, I've hit it there. Right. Um, so... You know, that's my biggest take from Adam as a kid is, is golf was fun for him. Um, and that's probably not helpful in answering what you, you asked. But I, off the top of my head, I can't think of one particular thing where I thought, wow, how funny is that? Um, he just did all the things you do, but he did them with a smile on his face. He just loved playing golf. That's fun. Mm. Um, so you mentioned you made a club for him. Um, yeah. And Adam has shared some pictures. I don't know how to find one uh, of some some older clubs from what you've made for him. Yeah. Did you do that er just in the earlier days, or is that something that you've always been tinkering with? Well, I tinkered with it from the time I became an uh, an assistant pro because club repair was basically like making clubs. Then I mean, <laughs> you can almost laugh at it. Club repair today—they just unscrew the head off the Titleist drive and send it back to Titleist, don't they? Whichever company it is. I mean, that, you know, then they're made out of wood and they had inlays in them and brass sole plates on them and they're all screwed together and glued together and it was a big job to, to do a lot of the repairs. So 
if you became proficient at repair, you were only a step away from club making. Yeah, you're basically right there. Yeah, and I loved club making, woodheads. That's what I made. I didn't make irons. Um, so Adam's first club was a little woodhead and we didn't put lead in it like we used to and put a big brass plate on it because that was too heavy. Um, and that's what he used. Yeah. Uh, so, I look, I, I love making clubs from day one. I liked repairing them, and then when I could make them, I made them. Right. Uh, how many? So you've made, is it primarily woods woods drivers or just woods specifically? I don't know, all woods, but, I mean, back then, right at the start of my proto, there were no metal woods. There was only wood woods. Right. So I guess metal woods were coming in, certainly in Australia, about the late 70s, early 80s in yeah. Ukraine somewhere. So we didn't have any. I mean, we had wooden clubs, not wooden shafts. I'm not that old. <laughs> um, and so that's what Adam learnt with. I mean, Adam was using wooden driver until the mid-90s. Yeah. I mean, a couple of guys on the tour, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Fred Couples that when the year that he won, did he have a wood club in his bag? Maybe not. Well, the year he won the Masters. Yeah, 90, Probably. Davis, I think I'm right in saying Davis Love was the last guy to use a wooden driver on tour. And that was in the 90s, yeah, not early 90s, later on, late 90s. Do you think, because just this whole club talk is fascinating, because I've never hit a wood club before. Mm. Uh, the difference between hitting a ball with a wood club versus the stuff that's out here today, obviously, aesthetically, I look at it and I'm like, that's, that's not going to be easy. Mm. Uh, but there's probably something to be said about if you grow up with it, you just, you just learn how to play with it. Is it drastically different? Um, to hit like obviously the technology is is, is advanced in the, in the newer stuff but from a golfer picking up the club handing it out of the bag won't you learn the technique is it really hard to learn or well every single bit of what you just said applies it, it's not like just saying well here's a wooden club gee look at that because they were half the size a driver then was half the size of today's driver um but everything else was relevant to that. It wasn't like one area of golf equipment technology went 100 miles and everything else went one because they all go together. So the golf ball you were using when you used a wooden club was nothing like the ball we use today, right. nothing like it. Um, the shaft that was in that club was much heavier, had a lot more torsion, um, much worse, lesser grade tolerances. I mean, everything was different. Side question, because... They were shorter, but a driver then was 43 inches. Right. Uh, but, like, side question, so the balls. There's been some conversation over the years about the technology in the ball mm -hmm. going too far, so on and so forth. Do you subscribe to any of that, or...? Um, it's changed golf. The, the ball... Look, the, the technology started changing when the metal woods came, so in the 80s somewhere. Cobra made a couple of plastic clubs into the 80s, early 90s. John Daly won the PGA in 91 with a white plastic Cobra driver. Get out. Um, and the, but we were still using, on tour, still Bellata golf balls then. So the old-fashioned you know, rubber core with, with elastic wrap around it and a Bellata cover. Um, and they had got better than the 70s or whatever, but it was really when the Pro V1 came out 2000, whatever that was, 2000, 2001, I think, 2000. Uh, that changed. It was 
markedly better than any other golf ball on the market. So Tiger's brought that ball out. Um, that, that had them, they were so far in front of every other company with that ball. And that started to change it because then they were on a path of understanding, weren't they, that, hey, we've made a ball that's a lot better and there's still a lot of room to go and technology was coming along at the same time, the same pace. So now you could simulate them computers. You could, there were all sorts of new materials that were getting made. And so everything happened. And then, so it wasn't just the ball. Then there was a new materials for their heads. Oh, we can make these clubs out of titanium. Then we can have thinner balls. And that changes the dynamic of the club. And the graphite was into shafts. Um, and so everything happened. And so that progression of everything goes too far, maybe that's right, but it's only right compared to what you're using it on, isn't it? And, you know, as, as suddenly it's normal for guys on tour to hit 330 yards, the, the question is what, how do we deal with the course that they were playing? Right. Because now it's short, so all they do is hit a wedge all day. Mm -hmm. um, so is it possible to blame the ball? Maybe, but things have gone along with that um, as they still are. I mean, that debate's been going for a long time, but they still seem to be sneaking another few <laughs> yards every year. Every year. Um, but it, it's, hard, it's hard to know whether that should be stopped. Maybe you could argue that tour golf should be being played on courses built for tournament players and not the courses that you and I play. Right. That's a, that's a fair perspective. You know, your Formula One tracks, you know, don't look like the street I live on. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, you know, your question was what, what were the, the clubs were of a different era? Because you go back another era, go back 50 years before that, they wooden shafts. Yeah. And that's just what it so was. So that's just how it is. Right. It evolves. Yeah. What do you, th so with evolution, what do you think is next when it comes to equipment specifically like what do you think the next thing is because obviously tinkering with you know it's the ball and obviously titleist has come up with a really beautiful product um but then when you look at what happens year over there and maybe there's potentially maybe there's a little bit more in innovation when it comes to clubs right we're using different materials and obviously there are you know parameters that you have to work within uh what do you think is going to be kind of like the next step in terms of mm -hmm. advancing what we're using to play the game uh, I think materials will continue to evolve because that's an ongoing thing, not just in golf, isn't it? That they're, you know, NASA are working on materials all the time that have different characteristics of heat or whatever it all might be. You know, memory-shaped metals, smart material, plastics and rubbers, uh, they're going to be prevalent in golf more than they are now. Um, so I think materials will be one thing. I think the era is ripe for some new design clubs. Um, maybe not everyone will agree with that, but certainly in the time I've been interested in clubs, we went from really basic blade irons, like the Touring Pros still somehow use and play fantastically with. Um, and then Ping came along, and Ping invented effectively the cavity back iron and investment casting golf clubs which were always forged before and they were radical and now every cavity back club we see is in some way a wash up of a ping from the 70s but there's not been i don't 
think there's been another innovator like Ping since Ping. Is that with the, is it the i2 or an earlier model? Well, there was earlier than i2. Amazingly, there was i1, wasn't there? It was just called i. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> just a Ping i, and there was one before that that <laughs> was called whatever it was. But, um, I mean, those clubs were radical. They were beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful clubs. They're still lovely clubs to use. Um, but I think he was the great innovator. Um, and there's been equipment guys since then, and the fantastic Tom Crow, who sadly passed away now, he set up Cobra, was marvellous. There's been lots of them. Um, but they didn't, they didn't have as radical an innovative product or style that Ping had from what he was dealing with. Basic blade club, suddenly you come up with a Ping, an I2. You know, that's a radical change, and I, don't, I haven't seen that radical uh, since then. So I think that's going to happen because, again, technology is going to allow us to do it. If the materials get better, the programming and the design work gets better with it, and suddenly you can do anything because you could find a material that works for a different design. So I think that'll happen, and I think there'll be more customization by the properties of the material, not just someone saying, oh, Andrew, you need you know, an inch longer than standard and one degree upright and you know, here's the dispersion pattern of that iron head to this one, which is all good, but maybe you'll be able to customise that by the type of material that is relative to your swing speed or any other characteristics. That's, that's very interesting. Right, because if you have, if they have all that stuff there and they can actually manufacture it quickly, then that that adds another variable to the equation. Maybe it's a fantasy, but you know, I keep speaking to people in other industries that say, you know, with three D printing and where that's going to go, um, you know, you'll just order a little, I don't know, a little capsule like a Nespresso capsule and plug it into your three D machine at home, and it'll make a five iron. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. You know, I know clothing companies are looking at that right now. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not that far away when yeah. you really think about so, it. So, you know, it's hard to get your head around that a bit maybe, but that's where I think it'll go. I think we'll see some different design and some different material. Um, you know, it's been 20, last 20 years have been really steel titanium. We're starting to see the companies do more with carbon. Um, you know, that following the space industry, I guess, things like carbon and these memory-shaped metals um, could change everything. Right. It's interesting. Mm. Uh, Speaking of designs, I'd love to chat a little bit about Phil Scott designs. So uh, my understanding of you spend a lot of time in Asia and uh, with your company, um, part of your role was just building uh, clubs, getting them off the ground, um, correct? Yeah, I mean... I came up to Asia. My background by then, had, I'd gone from, you know, the potential life of a club pro. I, I got really lucky and got in to manage some new development clubs and that got me in with some designers, Peter Thompson, a famous Australian player, and his partner. And that, you know, again, it was of fortune that they were very busy with designing courses through Asia. And so I came and did a lot of work with them um, in the setup of courses, clubhouses, and then a little bit more involvement with the design and construction of the course. Nice. Because that part I think is interesting when um, obviously as for me as an average golfer, you know, I show up to a course. I'm like, oh, if I'm not a member there, let's say it's a nice public track. Oh, this place is nice. Let's go play. I pay my 
hundred dollars. I mm-hmm. go play and oh, the greens are nice, the bunkers are pretty, the food is nice, the clubhouse looks great. I had a great time. I go home. I think a lot of golfers specifically don't understand there's a lot that goes into to doing that, especially mm-hmm. when you think of a new club and when you really see, you know, what golf is looking like now and how the game's been growing. Uh, I'm not sure what the rate of new clubs opening versus old clubs doing maintenance or old clubs. I don't know what that looks like now, but I'm sure from your perspective, which I love to chat a bit about is what goes into a club. Um, one from the, from the perspective of, okay, I'm an owner or someone says, Hey, I've got the land. Here's mm-hmm. what I need. Phil, go do your thing. Like what goes into that? And then on the other end, what have you seen over the years from the, the consumer perspective, i.e. these are the things that the golfer is looking for and your recommendations to the owner of the club who may or may not mm-hmm. have the years of experience that you have within golf. Here's what you need to do to, to maintain or provide that experience for the, the mm. golfer. Um, it's a complex answer to probably what's a simple question because the different regions around the world operate very differently. You know, golf in Japan is very different to golf in Australia. Um, golf in America is very different to golf in South Korea. Um, and so because it's so radically different, there's different cost bases. So, for example, golf in Japan grew up as a very elitist, private, expensive sport because land was short. Um, you know, it was, it was then at that time golf was booming here, a very male dominated, um, business world and, and golf was seen as something that businessmen did. Um, America in the boom time, say in my era, not that the great boom time was late 1800s, early 1900s in America, wasn't it? But there, there was a massive boom in country club golf, mm. you know, eighties, nineties, um, and again, it coincided with some really strong economic times and that business community wanted to play golf and the successful business people wanted to live in a gated community and have a country club with a pool and 20 tennis courts and all the bits around it. Uh, and for a while it all looked fabulous. And certainly when we were working in Southeast Asia, it was all expensive there was no easy access public golf courses getting built, none. And look, in answer to you said, you know, what's opening or what's closing in quantities, I can I certainly in the 90s and the early part of the 2000s in America, there were about four to 600 new courses opening every year. It was a big boom. Back not many years ago, there was negative. There were more closing than there were getting built. Hopefully there's a bit of turnaround now in golf and we're seeing a bit of a resurgence, COVID-driven actually, but good news if the golf guys do it well, there's some new markets. So that, that really leads me to answering your question, hopefully, which is we would always try and tell the client, what is your operational model here? What are you wanting to achieve? Because you're going to spend a lot of money, you know, even in the nineties, but, um, therefore you'd assume more now, if you wanted a proper, properly built and constructed course of high quality, you know, at least a million a hole before this is after you've bought the land and after you've done other things and you've got civil works to do as well. And then you've got to build a clubhouse. Right. 
Um, you know, we we did plenty of projects up here in that time that were 50, 60, 70 million with the course and clubhouse. A million bucks a hole. Yeah. Wow. So sometimes those individual owners who were doing it was because they could and the money didn't bother them. In Asia a lot, there was a very much a, a culture then that uh, people joined multiple clubs because their company paid. And so the owner would get back this 50 or 60 or 70 million quite quickly. Um, nevertheless, ongoingly, it wasn't making a 10% return. So things changed right. when money tightened up a bit because it very, it's very difficult business to make a lot of money out of running a club. Um, what do you think, so from the consumer perspective, because obviously someone says, hey, I've got the money to build the club, let's build the club, great. It's good to go. You walk away. The club is running and operational. Uh, what do you think? And it could be even maybe golfers then and golfers now. What do you think golfers are looking for from a from a club perspective outside of the basic? All right, I want the you know the fairways to be in good shape because I think there's probably much more that goes into it than just that. Mm. Um, from a from a operationals perspective like what do you think that average golfer is is looking for and how would you take those things and relay them to whoever is running the club to say hey these are those steps that you need well to again take. i think it comes back to that same thing what's the operational model like who are you trying to get here you know is it a residential estate and people you know i i live on a in a residential golf estate in australia we have two courses and a thousand members and that model is about everyone just rolls up in their own golf cart mm. and plays and does their bits. And um, that's radically different from a course up the road that's even, even if it's high in public golf course, there's a different level of expectation from that customer. So it's really establishing what, what are you, who are you targeting here? What, what are you going to need to provide? And it can be really simple or really complex answer, can't it? If you've got a, golf course at a residential estate and everyone's driving two minutes from their house, how big a locker room do you need? Probably yeah. not much. Sounds silly, but you, they're not. But, it's that simple. You know, if, if that same member was driving 30 minutes to get to his club, then you might need a bigger locker room, example, because he's going, oh, I'm going to come in and have a shower, change, go in and have a bit of food. So everything's different. And the, and the offering that you provide is based on who that customer is and who that consumer is. So now as we're hopefully seeing a boom in golf numbers again and hopefully new players, I think we're going to see a lot of clubs change their operational model because, again, the community's changed. Right. Hasn't it? I mean, again, it just, it's just my time and therefore it can't be right for everything, it's just what I've observed and seen in life. The community's changed I mean, from the 70s to now. You know, both partners are working more often than not. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a different expectation of time that right. can be given to golf because everyone's busier, it seems. And as I said, both partners are working. There's drink driving laws that didn't you didn't have in the 1970s. So now the people going after golf, they have couple of light beers and they need to go home. So now the revenue's down at the food and beverage outlet at the golf club. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Cause I don't know, like me, I live in New York city, your traffic. There's not that many places to play that are public. Mm -hmm. They're not in great shape. 
at least from my perspective, it seems like the operational model that may have been initially put in place, the the expectations and the realities of, hey, you know, the average golfer that comes, like I'm a, I played this public course. I'm not really a member there, but the place that I would consider my home course, it's called Marine Park. It's in Brooklyn, New York, right in the middle of Brooklyn. You know, everyone from plumbers to teachers to graphic designer, everybody plays here, right? Um, course is in decent shape. It depends on what the city funding looks like. But I think over the years, what I've seen change is that the money that gets put into the course versus put into the staffing versus put into the food, like it seems mm-hmm. like things kind of get like shuffled around. And maybe some of that, and, and I love your take on this, maybe some of it is because the business has not evolved to meet the needs of what that one, their current customer looks like, looks like and what they need. And then two, the realities of what the customer is giving back and the realities of just the state of the market. Cause you kind of have to consider all those things yeah. because if, all right, well, our members are older and they only play two times a month now and they don't want to eat here anymore. Right. But they want to practice, but we don't have a range and, yep. and all these things, but the club was built to have all these things. And someone's complaining because, Oh, well, why is the club running out of money? It's because you know, you're following a business model that's 15 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? What do you and the community changes in yeah. two decades. Right. How do you think, how do you keep up with that? Well, that's management. Any business doesn't have to be golf. Does it, it could be, clothing shop or whatever you got to you know you've got to model your business around what the community and your customer base wants so public golf courses are short around the world that we need more of them but we don't want public golf courses necessarily that are in poor condition but that in the in the previous days the public golf courses were run by the city or the municipality or uh, now they don't want to do that anymore that the city or the municipalities around the world australia where i live don't want golf courses mm. too hard too expensive can't make any money don't want to run it mm-hmm. and there's community pressure to say how come there's 75 hectares of this precious green open space in the city being given to golfers how come we all can't have a walk around there and ride our bike and Hey, that's understandable too. Yeah. You know, just because I'm a golfer, I mightn't like it, but fair, fair. it's fair play, you know. Um, when only one in 15 or 20 adults in the country plays golf. Right. So all of those pressures create different environments, don't they? So suddenly that inner city owned by the city golf course is gone and it's now 30 miles out and you've got to drive 30 miles to get to it, whatever it is. And so there's a whole different criteria again. Who's going to do that? Everyone's busy. You and your partner are working. You can't drive 30 miles except maybe Sunday. You know, the models are difficult. It's interesting. And there's mm. like a lot of just, a lot of nuance in there. It's not just about, I want to build a nice club and I want it to be pretty and I want everybody to be hanging out here. Yeah, That's so the dream. But What are we going to see? Maybe, maybe hopefully some shorter nine holes, you know, just in nice condition. Do you, does it actually have to have a restaurant? I mean, there's thousands of restaurants. Yeah. You know, you need a restaurant or a golf club in New York? No. Why? You know, there's thousands of restaurants. That's true. That's just another cost. It's a bigger clubhouse. It's more staff. It's all of those things that go on. So A nine hole sounds great. Why not? You know, right. nine holes plays two hours. Yeah. Get Got home. two hours. Maybe you can play Thursday as well as Sunday. Right. It's true. One last question. So, um, 
And so for people, because obviously you've grown up with the game, your family's grown up with the game, for people that are into the game and looking to get their family into it, and there could be younger kids, middle-aged kids, do you have any advice just that you've learned over the years of, hey, here here are some positive and effective ways to not, uh, to get your family into the game, maybe your kids, mm. but also not force them to feel like, hey, you have to play this thing. Like, I would love to put a club in my son's hand. Yep. I try to from time to time, and mm-hmm. I, I don't force him. Um, what are some things that you've learned or recommendations that you'd give to someone and be like, hey, I want my kid to grow up and just be passionate about golf? What would, yeah. you, what would you recommend? Um, probably a few things. I mean, it, it's true but corny to say it's got to be fun, but it's a throwaway line. I mean, you actually have to make it something that kids want to do. For obviously, my experience with doing it with Adam, but over the years I've talked to a lot of people about this, one of the successful things we did with him, which I really like, was he didn't, when he started swinging a golf club, which was plastic, you know, two or whatever, and then going along the way, he didn't hit a golf ball-sized ball. He hit a bigger ball. So literally the first time he ever swung a club and hit a ball, was it was a blow-up beach ball. Well, you can't miss. So, I mean, any kid's going to hit it. It's big. Well, when you hit, it's a win. You imagine giving a kid a club, no matter what age, three, six, 10, 14, and he just keeps missing the ball. He says, I don't want to do this. It's no fun. Right, it's no fun. So we started with big ball and brought the size down as he got better. That's interesting. That makes sense. I always thought that was good. I think it would be hard to teach a teenager to get into golf now, not obviously not impossible, but once again, we're going to have to reflect the community and get a, get rid of some of the old-fashioned, archaic maybe, thoughts, which is why we also need more relaxed facilities and accessible facilities where maybe you don't have to have as many rules. But, sure, you know, I mean, the club I'm at, as an example, we'll pick on them still have a rule that says you can't wear cargo shorts. You can wear shorts, but not cargo shorts. No pockets. What, so pockets on the outside is an offence <laughs> to someone? <laughs> you know, so some, a 15-year-old kid's just going to say, what is that? Right. There's rubbish. Right. And should we be stopping him playing because he's got pockets on, on his shorts? Crazy, <laughs> you know. So I think wild. we've just got to adapt a bit, even though I love the traditions of golf. Sure. But that's not something I'd love as a tradition. I'd say, well, that might have been the case back then, but it's not the case now. Fair. The community's changed. We go to work and we don't all wear a pinstripe suit and a tie and you know, whatever to go to work, do we? we and we're fine. Work. So <laughs> I think we've got to let the kids do that. Little kids, as I said, the, the fun is the key and there's different ways to, to make that uh, applicable, I think. So we did it with a ball, the size of the ball. Um, Technique's important because if your technique's no good, it's hard to do it. But you just need to find the one or two things mm-hmm. that allow the kid to do that and then just go do it. You make it like every other sport. Nice. A kid kicks a – if he kicks football, if there's no football, he kicks a can, doesn't he, or a, something. He find, the same, golf should be the same. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it makes sense when you break and down And look, like and today it's technology, so they're going to play on a computer and – you know, they're going to hit simulators and right. hold a little stick that's two foot long and it's going to translate onto a computer screen and that's okay too. Yeah, because yeah. it's still golf. It's still golf and it's still fun. Right. Yeah. That's fun. Awesome. 
Uh, your summer's kicking off when you go back home, right? Is it summer? Is it is it kind of spring now in Australia? Uh, well, it's summer. Oh, it's officially summer now. Well, is it summer? No, it's October. It's not. I think November one is summer, but we're heading into the warm nice. times. Are you excited? Yeah. Looking forward to it? Well, yeah. I mean, summer in Australia is different from north to south. So north is pretty tropical. South is dry. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think summer in the south is better than summer in the north, but I live <laughs> in the north. Um, but for us as a family, it's great because Adam comes home and nice. we get to spend a little bit of time. Unfortunately, our daughter won't get home, but uh, it's a nice time. We just get to relax a bit. Fantastic. So it'll be good. Good stuff. You get to play a bunch of golf? Yeah. Usually play a bit in summer. Nice. Hopefully get some golf with Adam. That's a bit more rare these days than used to be. Awesome. Well, enjoy that. Thanks for being on the podcast. This was fun. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fair Game Podcast. If you haven't already, you can hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever service you may be using. We've also launched the Fair Game app, golf's first digital clubhouse, the place to play your game and connect with golfers across the country. You can find it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can also find us on Instagram at Fair Game Golf and check out some of our original videos on our YouTube page. You can find all these links in the podcast episode details. We'll see you next time.